Section 10 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter 5 The Toys. Part 1. You are right, sir. I very seldom speak of my Halkion days, those days when the greatest monarch the world has ever known honoured me with his intimacy and confidence. I had my office in the Rue St. Roch then, at the top of a house, just by the church, and not a stone's throw from the palace. And I can tell you, sir, that in those days ministers of state foreign ambassadors i and members of his majesty's household were up and down my staircase at all hours of the day i had not yet met theodore then and fate was wont to smile on me as for monsieur le duc d'autrante minister of police he would send to me or for me whenever an intricate case required special acumen resourcefulness and secrecy Thus, in the matter of the English files, have I told you of it before? No? Well, then you shall hear. Those were the days, sir, when the Emperor's Berlin decrees were going to sweep the world clear of English commerce and of English enterprise. It was not a case of paying heavy duty on English goods, or a still heavier fine if you smuggled. It was total prohibition and hanging if you were caught, bringing so much as a meter of Bradford cloth or half a dozen Sheffield files into the country. But you know how it is, sir. The more strict the law, the more ready are certain lawless human creatures to break it. Never was smuggling so rife as it was in those days. I am speaking now of 1810 or 11. Never was it so daring or smugglers so reckless. Monsieur le Duc d'Autrante had his hands full, I can tell you. It had become a matter for the secret police. The Coast Guard or the customs officials were no longer able to deal with it. Then one day Hippolyte Leroux came to see me. I knew the man well, a keen sleuth-hound, if ever there was one, and well did he deserve his name, for he was a red fox. Ratichon, he said to me, without preamble, as soon as he had seated himself opposite to me, and I had placed half a bottle of good Bordeaux and a couple of glasses on the table. I want your help in the matter of these English files. We've done all that we can in our department. Monsieur le Duc has doubled the customs personnel on the Swiss frontier. The Coast Guard is both keen and efficient, and yet we know that at the present moment there are thousands of English files used in this country, even inside His Majesty's own armament works. Monsieur le Duc d'Autrante is determined to put an end to the scandal. He has offered a big reward for information which will lead to the conviction of one or more of the chief culprits. 
and I am determined to get that reward with your help if you will give it. What is the reward? I asked simply. Five thousand francs, he replied. Your knowledge of English and Italian is what caused me to offer you a share in this splendid enterprise. It's no good lying to me, Leroux, I broke in quietly, if we are going to work amicably together. He swore. The reward is ten thousand francs. I made the shot at a venture, knowing my man well. I swear it is not, he asserted hotly. Swear again, I retorted, for I'll not deal with you for less than five thousand. He did swear again and protested loudly, but I was firm. Have another glass of wine, I said, after which he gave in. The affair was bound to be risky. Smugglers of English goods were determined and desperate men who were playing for high stakes and risking their necks on the board. In all matters of smuggling, a knowledge of foreign languages was an invaluable asset. I spoke Italian well and knew some English. I knew my worth. We both drank a glass of cognac and sealed our bond then and there after which Leroux drew his chair closer to my desk. "'Listen, then,' he said. "'You know the firm of Fournier Frere in the Rue Colbert?' "'By name, of course. Cutlers and surgical instruments makers by appointment to His Majesty. What about them?' "'Monsieur le Duc has had his eyes on them for some time.' "'Fournier Frere!' I ejaculated. "'Impossible!' A more reputable firm does not exist in France. I know, I know, he rejoined impatiently, and yet it is a curious fact that Monsieur Aristide Fournier, the junior partner, has lately bought for himself a house at St. Claude. At St. Claude? I ejaculated. Yes, he responded dryly. Very near to Gex. What? I shrugged my shoulders, for indeed the circumstances did appear somewhat strange. Do you know Gex, my dear sir? Ah, it is a curious and romantic spot. It has possibilities, both natural and political, which appear to have been expressly devised for the benefit of the smuggling fraternity. Nestling in the midst of the Jura Mountains, it is outside the custom zone of the Empire. So you see the possibilities, do you not? Gex soon became the picturesque warehouse of every conceivable kind of contraband goods. On one side of it there was the Swiss frontier, and the Swiss government was always willing to close one eye in the matter of customs, provided its palm was sufficiently greased by the light-fingered gentry. No difficulty, therefore, as you see, in getting contraband goods, even English ones, as far as Gex. Here they could be hidden until a fitting opportunity occurred for smuggling them into France, opportunities for which the Jura, with their narrow defiles and difficult mountain paths, afforded magnificent scoop. St. Claude, of which Leroux had just spoken, as the place where Monsieur Aristide Fournier had recently bought himself a house, is in France, 
only a few kilometres from the neutral zone of Gex. It seemed a strange spot to choose for a wealthy and fashionable member of Parisian bourgeois society, I was bound to admit. But, I mused, one cannot go to Gex without a permit from the police. Not by road, Leroux assented. But you will own that there are means available to men who are young and vigorous like Monsieur Fournier, who, moreover, I understand, is an accomplished mountaineer. You know Gex, of course? I had crossed the Jura once in my youth, but was not intimately familiar with the district. Leroux had a carefully drawn-out map of it in his pocket. This he laid out before me. These two roads, he began tracing the windings of a couple of thin red lines on the map with the point of his finger, are the only two made ones that lead in and out of the district. Here is the Valserine, he went on, pointing to a blue line, which flows from north to south, and both the roads wind over bridges that span the river close to our frontier. The French custom stations are on our side of those bridges. But besides those two roads, the frontier can, of course, be crossed by one or other of the innumerable mountain tracks, which are only accessible to pedestrians or mules. That is where our customs officials are powerless, for the tracks are precipitous and offer unlimited cover to those who know every inch of the ground. Several of them lead directly into St. Claude, at some considerable distance from the custom stations, and it is these tracks which are being used by Monsieur Aristide Fournier for the felonious purpose of trading with the enemy. On this I would stake my life, but I mean to be even with him, and if I get the help which I require from you, I am convinced that I can lay him by the heels. I am your man, I concluded simply. Very well, he resumed. Are you prepared to journey with me to Gix? When do you start? Today. I shall be ready. He gave a deep sigh of satisfaction. Then listen to my plan, he said. We'll journey together as far as St. Claude. From there you will push on to Gex and take up your abode in the city, styling yourself as interpreter. This will give you the opportunity of mixing with some of the smuggling fraternity, and it will be your duty to keep both your eyes and ears open. I, on the other hand, will take up my quarters at Michoud, the French custom station, which is on the frontier, about half a dozen kilometres from Gex. Every day I'll arrange to meet you, either at the latter place or somewhere halfway, and hear what news you may have to tell me. And mind, Ratichon, he added sternly. It means running straight, or the reward will slip through our fingers. I chose to ignore the coarse insinuation, and only reposted quietly. I must have money on account. I am a poor man, and I will be out of pocket by the transaction from the hour I start for Gex, to that when you pay me my fair share of the reward. 
By way of a reply he took out a case from his pocket. I saw that it was bulging over with banknotes, which confirmed me in my conviction both that he was actually an emissary of the Minister of Police and that I could have demanded an additional thousand francs without fear of losing the business. "'I'll give you five hundred on account,' he said, as he licked his ugly thumb, preparatory to counting out the money before me. "'Make it a thousand, I retorted, and call it additional, not on account.' He tried to argue. "'I'm not keen on the business,' I said with calm dignity. "'So if you think that I am asking too much, there are others, no doubt, who would do the work for less.' It was a bold move, but it succeeded. Leroux laughed and shrugged his shoulders. Then he counted out ten hundred franc notes and laid them out upon the desk. But before I could touch them, he laid his large bony hands over the lot, and looking me straight between the eyes, he said with earnest significance, "'English files are worth as much as twenty francs apiece in the market.' "'I know.' Fournier frères would not take the risks which they are doing for a consignment of less than ten thousand. I doubt if they would, I rejoined blandly. It will be your business to find out how and when the smugglers propose to get their next consignment over the frontier. Exactly. And to communicate any information you may have obtained to me. And to keep an eye on the valuable cargo, of course, I concluded. Yes, he said roughly. An eye. But hands off, understand, my good Ratichon, or there'll be trouble. He did not wait to hear my indignant protest. He had risen to his feet and had already turned to go. Now he stretched his great coarse hand out to me. All in good part, eh? I took his hand. He meant no harm, did old Leroux. He was just a common vulgar fellow who did not know a gentleman when he saw one, and we parted the best of friends. A week later I was at Gex. At St. Claude I had parted from Leroux, and then hired a chaise to take me to my destination. It was a matter of fifteen kilometres by road over the frontier of the customs zone and through the most superb scenery I had ever seen in my life. We drove through narrow gorges, on each side of which the mountain heights rose rugged and precipitous to incalculable altitudes above. From time to time only did I get peeps of almost imperceptible tracks along the declivities, tracks on which it seemed as if goats alone could obtain a footing. Once hundreds of feet above me, I spied a couple of mules descending what seemed like a sheer perpendicular path down the mountainside. The animals appeared to be heavily laden, and I marvelled what forbidden goods lay hidden within their packs, and whether in the days that were to come I too should be called upon to risk my life on those delictivities following in the footsteps of the reckless and desperate criminals whom it was my duty to pursue. I confess that at the thought and with those pictures of grim nature before me I felt an unpleasant shiver coursing down my spine. 
Nothing of importance occurred during the first fortnight of my sojourn at Gex. I was installed in moderately comfortable, furnished rooms in the heart of the city, close to the church and market square. In one of my front windows, situated on the ground floor, I had placed a card bearing the inscription Aristide Barrault, Interpreter, and below Anglais, Allemande, Italienne. I had even had a few clients, conversations between the local police and some poor wretches caught in the act of smuggling a few yards of Swiss silk or a couple of cream cheeses over the French frontier and sent back to Gex to be dealt with by the local authorities. Leroux had found lodgings at Michoud, and twice daily he walked over to Gex to consult with me. We met mornings and evenings at the café-restaurant of the Crane Shaw, an obscure little tavern situated on the outskirts of the city. He was waxing impatient at what he called my supineness, for indeed so far I had nothing to report. There was no sign of Monsieur Aristide Fournier. No one in Gex appeared to know anything about him, though the proprietor of the principal hotel in the town did recollect having had a visitor of that name once or twice during the past year. But, of course, during this early stage of my stay in the town, it was impossible for me to believe anything that I was told. I had not yet succeeded in winning the confidence of the inhabitants, and it was soon pretty evident to me that the whole countryside was engaged in the perilous industry of smuggling. Everyone, from the mayor downwards, did a bit of a deal, now and again in contraband goods. In ordinary cases it only meant fines if one was caught, or perhaps imprisonment for repeated offences. But four or five days after my arrival at Gex I saw three fellows handed over to the police of the department. They had been caught in the act of trying to ford the Valserin with half a dozen pack mules laden with English cloth. They were hanged at St. Claude two days later. I can assure you, sir, that the news of this summary administration of justice sent another cold shiver down my spine, and I marvelled if indeed Leroux's surmises were correct and if a respectable tradesman like Aristide Fournier would take such terrible risks even for the sake of heavy gains. I had been in Gex just a fortnight when the weather, which hitherto had been splendid, turned to squalls and storms. We were then in the second week of September. A torrential rain had fallen the whole of one day, during which I had only been out in order to meet Leroux as usual, at the Café du Crenchot. I had just come home from our evening meeting. It was ten o'clock, and I was preparing to go comfortably to bed when I was startled by a violent ring at the front doorbell. I had only just time to wonder if this belated visitor desired to see me or my worthy landlady, Madame Bournon, when her heavy footsteps resounded along the passage. The next moment I heard my name spoken peremptorily by a harsh voice, and Madame Bournon's reply was that Monsieur Aristide Barrault was indeed within. A few seconds later she ushered my nocturnal visitor into my room. He was wrapped in a dark mantle from head to foot, 
and he wore a wide-brimmed hat pulled right over his eyes. He did not remove either as he addressed me without further preamble. "'You are an interpreter, sir?' he queried, speaking very rapidly in sharp, commanding tones. "'At your service,' I replied. "'My name is Ernst Berti. I want you to come with me at once to my house.' I require your services intermediary between myself and some men who have come to see me on business. These men whom I wish you to see are Russians, he added, I fancied as an afterthought, but they speak English fluently. I suppose that I looked just as I felt, somewhat dubious owing to the lateness of the hour and the darkness of the night, not to speak of the abominable weather, for he continued with marked impatience. It is imperative that you should come at once, though my house is at some little distance from here. I have a chaise outside which will also bring you back, and, he added significantly, I will pay you whatever you demand. It is very late, I demurred, the weather. Your fee-man, he broke in roughly, and let's get on. Five hundred francs, I said at a venture. Come, was his curt reply. I will give you the money as we drive along. I wished I had made it a thousand. Apparently my services were worth a great deal to him. However, I picked up my mantle and my hat, and within a few seconds was ready to go. I shouted up to Madame Bournon that I would not be home for a couple of hours, but that as I had my key, I need not disturb her when I returned. Once outside the door, I almost regretted my ready acquiescence in this nocturnal adventure. The rain was beating down unmercifully, and at first I saw no sign of a vehicle. But in an answer to my visitor's sharp command, I followed him down the street as far as the market square, at the corner of which I spied the dim outline of a carriage and a couple of horses. Without wasting too many words, Monsieur Ernest Bertie bundled me into the carriage, and very soon we were on the way. The night was impenetrably dark, and the chaise more than ordinarily rickety. I had but little opportunity to ascertain which way we were going. A small lanthorn fixed opposite to me in the interior of the carriage, and flickering incessantly before my eyes, made it still more impossible for me to see anything outside the narrow window. My companion sat beside me, silent and absorbed. After a while I ventured to ask him which way we were driving. "'Through the town,' he replied curtly. "'My house is just outside Divonne.' Now Divonne is, as I knew, quite close to the Swiss frontier. It is a matter of seven or eight kilometres, an hour's drive at the very least, in this supremely uncomfortable vehicle. I tried to induce further conversation, but made no headway against my companion's taciturnity. However, I had little cause for complaint in an other direction. After the first quarter of an hour, and when we had left the cobblestones of the city behind us, he drew a bundle of notes from his pocket and by flickering light of the lanthorn he counted out ten fifty-franc notes and handed them without another word to me. The drive was unspeakably wearisome, 
but after a while I suppose that the monotonous rumbling of the wheels and the incessant patter of the rain against the window panes lulled me into a kind of torpor. Certain it is that presently, much sooner than I had anticipated, the chaise drew up with a jerk, and I was roused to full consciousness by hearing Monsieur Berti's voice saying curtly, Here we are. Come with me. I was stiff, sir, and I was shivering, not so much with cold as with excitement. You will readily understand that all my faculties were now on the qui vive. Somehow or other, during the wearisome drive by the side of my close-tongued companion, my mind had fastened on the certitude that my adventure this night bore a close connection to the firm of Fournier Frères and to the English files, which were causing so many sleepless nights to Monsieur le Duc d'Autrand, Minister of Police. But nothing in my manner as I stepped out of the carriage under the porch of the house which loomed dark and massive out of the surrounding gloom betrayed anything of what I felt. Outwardly I was just a worthy bourgeoise, an interpreter by profession, and delighted at the remunerative work so opportunely put in my way. The house itself appeared lonely as well as dark. Monsieur Bertie led the way across a narrow passage, at the end of which there was a door which he pushed open, saying in his usual abrupt manner, "'Go in there and wait. I'll send for you directly.' Then he closed the door on me, and I heard his footsteps recrossing the corridor and presently ascending some stairs. I was left alone in a small, sparsely furnished room, dimly lighted by an oil lamp which hung down from the ceiling. There was a table in the middle of the room, a square of carpet on the floor, and a couple of chairs beside a small iron stove. I noticed that the single window was closely shuttered and barred. I sat down and waited. At first the silence around me was only broken by the pattering of the rain against the shutters and the sowing of the wind down the iron chimney-pipe, but after a little while my senses, which by this time had become super-acute, were conscious of various noises within the house itself. Footsteps overhead, a confused murmur of voices, and anon the unmistakable sound of a female voice, raised as if in entreaty or in complaint. Somehow a vague feeling of alarm possessed itself of my nervous system. I began to realize my position, alone, a stranger in a house, as to whose situation I had not the remotest idea, and among a set of men who, if my surmises were correct, were nothing less than a gang of determined and dangerous criminals. The voices, especially the female one, were now sounding more clear. I tiptoed to the door and very gently opened it. There was indeed no mistaking the tone of desperate pleading which came from some room above and through a woman's lips. I even caught the words, Oh, don't! Oh, don't! Not again! repeated at intervals with pitiable insistence. Mastering my not unnatural anxiety, I opened the door a little farther and slipped out into the passage. All my instincts of chivalry towards beauty in distress aroused by those piteous cries. 
forgetful of every possible danger and of all prudence, I had already darted down the corridor, determined to do my duty as a gentleman as soon as I had ascertained whence had come those cries of anguish, when I heard the frou-frou of skirts and a rapid patter of small feet down the stairs. The next moment a radiant vision, all white muslin, fair curls and the scent of violets descended on me from above. A soft hand closed over mine and drew me, unresisting, back into the room from whence I had just come. Bewildered, I gazed on the winsome apparition before me, and beheld a young girl, slender as a lily, dressed in a soft, clinging gown, which made her appear more slender still, her fair hair arranged in a tangle of unruly curls round the dainty oval of her face. She was exquisite, sir, and the slenderness of her. You cannot imagine it. She looked like a young sapling bending to the gale. But what cut me to the heart was the look of terror and of misery in her face. She clasped her hands together, and the tears gathered in her eyes. Go, sir, go at once, she murmured under her breath speaking very rapidly. Do not waste a minute, I beg of you. As you value your life, go before it is too late. But, mademoiselle, I stammered, for indeed her words and appearance had roused all my worst fears, but also my instincts of the sleuth-hound scenting his quarry. Don't argue, I beg of you, continued the lovely creature, who indeed seemed the prey of overwhelming emotions, fear, horror, pity. When he comes back, do not let him find you here. I'll explain. I'll know what to say. Only I entreat you, go. Sir, I have many faults, but cowardice does not happen to be one of them and the more the angel pleaded, the more determined was I to see this business through. I was, of course, quite convinced by now that I was on the track of Monsieur Aristide Fournier and the English files, and I was not going to let five thousand francs and the gratitude of the Minister of Police slip through my fingers so easily. Mademoiselle, I rejoined as calmly as I could, let me assure you that though your anxiety for me is like manna to a starving man, I have no fears for my own safety. I have come here in the capacity of a humble interpreter. I certainly am not worth putting out of the way. Moreover, I have been paid for my services, and these I will render to my employer to the best of my capabilities. Ah! But you don't know, she retorted, not departing one jot from her attitude of terror and of entreaty. You don't understand. This house, monsieur, she added in a hoarse whisper, is nothing but a den of criminals, wherein no honest man or woman is safe. Pardon, mademoiselle, I reposted as lightly and as gallantly as I could. I see before me the living proof that angels at any rate dwell therein. Alas, sir, she rejoined with a heart-rending sigh, if you mean me, 
I'm only to be pitied. My dear mother and I are not but slaves to the will of my brother, who uses us as tools for his nefarious ends. But, I stammered horrified beyond speech at the vista of villainy, which her words had opened up before me. My mother, sir, she said simply, is old and ailing. She is dying of anguish at the sight of her son's misdeeds. I would not, could not leave her. Yet I would give my life to see her free from that miscreant's clutches. My whole soul was stirred to its depth by the intensity of passion which rang through this delicate creature's words. What weird and awesome mystery of iniquity and of crime lay hid, I wondered, between these walls? In what tragedy had I thus accidentally become involved while fulfilling my prosaic duty in the interest of His Majesty's Exchequer? As in a flash it suddenly came to me that perhaps I could serve both this lovely creature and the Emperor better by going out of the house now and lying hidden all the night through somewhere in its vicinity until in daylight I could locate its exact situation. Then I could communicate with Leroux at once and procure the apprehension of this Bertie or Fournier, who apparently was a desperate criminal. Already a bold plan was taking shape in my brain, and with my mind's eye I had measured the distance which separated me from the front door and safety, when, in the distance, I heard heavy footsteps slowly descending the stairs. I looked at my lovely companion, and saw her eyes gradually dilating with increased horror. She gave a smothered cry, pressed her handkerchief to her lips, then she murmured hoarsely, Too late, and fled precipitately from the room, leaving me a prey to mingled emotions such as I had never experienced before. End of chapter 5, part 1 Read by Lars Rolander